Welcome to The Spin Cycle. I'm Maggie Sarachek. And I'm Abby Greenberg. And together we are the Anxiety Sisters. Anxiety Sisters, we are so excited about today's show because our guest is a real superstar in the mental health field. Dr. Judd Brewer, or Dr. Judd as he likes to be called, is an internationally renowned addiction psychiatrist, a neuroscientist, and professor at Brown University's medical school. And I have to tell you, he has delivered one of the best TED Talks ever. Everybody knows how much I love TED Talks. His got something like 16 million views and is worth watching. He's also been the go-to expert on habits and anxiety for major media outlets such as CNN, 60 Minutes, Time Magazine, NPR, and Forbes. And now he's here for his biggest gig yet, the spin cycle with the Anxiety Sisters. So please help us welcome Dr. Judd to our show. Hi, Dr. Judd. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. We are so thrilled to have you. I know your, your schedule right now is jam-packed, so we really appreciate you making a spot for us. So we just, we thought we'd jump right in and start at the beginning. We know that you struggled with anxiety in your life. And in fact, you wrote that it started in college for you. Yes. Well, the, you know, and I start the very beginning of the Unwinding Anxiety book with my own struggles with even identifying anxiety in college. You know, the the one-liner on that is that I, you know, I couldn't imagine that I was possibly anxious because, you know, I was vegetarian, I exercised, I played the violin, I did all these things that were supposed to be, you know, would anxiety proof me or whatever, (laughs) and lo and behold, I was anxious enough that it was manifesting as GI symptoms, you know, I won't go into the the specifics, but we all know the GI symptoms, we know them well, Maggie is our GI expert, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, so it's, you know, I, I didn't even recognize it until after college. And in fact, after I'd finished medical school and was in residency, I started getting panic attacks myself. There are probably a number of things that contributed to that, including the, you know, the number of hours that we worked as residents or me not feeling like I had, you know, I was actually going to be a good psychiatrist or whatever, but I would get panic attacks. And um, then later on, when I was starting to treat my own patients with anxiety, I realized that it was really hard <laughs> to treat, you know, anxiety. In fact, the th- there's this number in medicine called the number needed to treat, meaning how many patients you need to treat with a medication before one person shows a significant reduction in symptoms. That number needed to treat is 5.15, which means I would have to treat five patients before one patient would show a significant reduction. I was basically playing the medication lottery. I didn't know which patient was going to come in and benefit. And then what was I going to do with the other four? So Mm -hmm. this converged when I was doing a lot of research around habit change. You know, my lab had developed uh, programs, mindfulness training programs for smoking. We gotten, for example, five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment for smoking cessation. We developed this app for eating called Eat Right Now, and we got a we'd gotten a forty percent reduction in craving related eating. And somebody in one, in our eating program said, "Hey, you know, anxiety triggers me to stress eat. Can you create an anxiety program?" 
And I was thinking, well, I'm an addiction psychiatrist, I prescribe medication, uh, but that kind of put a bug in my ear to look back at the research to see if I was missing something. And lo and behold, back in the 1980s, so this is back when the Stones were singing Mother's Little Helper, right? Um, so, yeah, she goes running to the shelter of Mother's Little Helper. So they were, they were talking about benzos because they were prescribed right. by candy back then. And in the 80s, Prozac was first the first SSRI that was developed. So people were really focusing on medications and ignoring a lot of really amazing research that was suggesting that anxiety could actually be perpetuated like a habit. Mm-hmm. And when I read about that, you know, my eyes popped out of my head and I was because I was thinking, wow, I never thought of anxiety as a habit. And wow, I know how to study and develop programs for habit change. So that's when we developed this unwinding anxiety app and started studying it. And long story short, you know, first clinical study, we got a 57% reduction in clinically validated anxiety scores in anxious physicians. Second study with generalized anxiety disorder, we got a 67% reduction. And here we could calculate the number needed to treat. So again, medications, 5.15. In this study, 1.6. Wow. That's a lot better. (laughs) <laughs> yes. yes. If an app could do a mic drop, that's what it would do. <laughs> and let me just tell our listeners, I use the unwinding anxiety app. It's wonderful. It has modules that you work through. I mean, it starts very basic. It, the very first one is what is anxiety? And Dr. Judd is on it. He talks you through all kinds of good stuff. And I, I highly recommend it. I am pretty sure I pay for a subscription, but I'm pretty sure that you can do it for free too, right? There's a part of it that's free. Yeah, I think it's a freemium model, right. uh, and and then some folks can get it through their employers, and you know, uh, ShareCare is the company that administers it. Yeah, and now we've got evidence behind it. You know, these studies I just mentioned are just being published now. Yes, it works, folks. It works. <laughs> so we know that your your background is working, I think, in the addiction field, right? Or is that where you started? Was in the addiction field? Yeah, it started with addictions, and then moved more generally to habit change. Okay. So I was curious for you to talk a little bit about what addiction is and how that connects with habit. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I learned this very simple definition of addiction in residency training, which is basically continued use despite adverse consequences. Mm -hmm. And that really helped me put things in perspective because it wasn't just, you know, cocaine or heroin or cigarettes, but it was you know, continued use of social media, despite adverse consequences, you know, continued use of video gaming, despite adverse consequences. M&M's. M&M's, yes. Yes. (laughs) That is my addiction. Absolutely. (laughs) So it helped me really start to see the process of addiction more generally, but also relate it to habits because habits are really formed to help us basically be efficient with our lives. So imagine if we woke up every morning and we had to relearn everything that we did every day, <laughs> we'd be exhausted before breakfast. So our brains have set up these, these mechanisms. So we'll learn things. I think of it as set and forget, you know, so it's like you learn to tie your shoes, you set that habit and you forget about the details. And if we can do that, that helps us be able to go through our, our day and be able to free up our brains so that we can learn new things. Right. Mm-hmm. So the, the problem is when some of these things become ingrained as habits and aren't so helpful. So let's use anxiety and worry as, a, as an example here. So I never, you know, again, I never thought of these as a habit, but it takes three elements to create a habit, a trigger, a behavior, and a result, or a, from a brain perspective, a reward. 
And this was set up so we'd remember where food is. So ancient ancestors, they didn't have refrigerators, they didn't have kitchens, they had to go find food every day. And the idea was that you go find the food, there's the trigger, the behavior was you'd eat the food, and then the your stomach would send this dopamine signal to your brain that said, basically, remember what you ate and where you found it. So it was set up so we'd remember where things are, we remember where the food is, and in the same way through negative reinforcement, we would remember where the danger is so we could avoid it. You know, we'd run away for the saber tooth tiger and we avoid that place in the future. So anxiety can drive its own habit loops in the same way. And I like the simple definition of anxiety where they talk about, uh, you know, this feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. And that feeling of worry can actually trigger the behavior of worry, right? So a feeling of worry can trigger the mental behavior of worry. Mm -hmm. So you can think of it as you feel anxious, there's the trigger. The behavior is to start worrying, right? A lot of my patients with generalized anxiety disorder, they wake up in the morning and they start, they feel anxious and then they start worrying either what's wrong with me or is this gonna last all day? And guess what? That worry feeds back <laughs> and makes it more likely to last all day because it right. feeds back and makes them more anxious. So that feeling of worry triggers that behavior of worry, of worrying, think of it as a mental behavior. Yeah. And that mental behavior, so what's the reward there, right? Because it just makes people anxious. But for our brains, it might make us feel like we're in control or at least give us something to do, right? So think about, you know, a parent whose kid just gets their driver's license and they go out, you know, on a Friday night with their friends and the parent stays up all night worrying until they hear the kid get, come home at night. Well, I can promise you that worrying did not keep their kid safe but it gave them something to do, right? Well, at least I'm worrying. So there can be this feeling of this reward that comes from doing something or feeling like that we're in control, even though we're not really in control. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes great sense. And that actually answers my question about, I, I tend to catastrophize around health issues. And I was actually using, you can go to Dr. Judd's website, which is in our show notes, and you can do this exercise too. It's really helpful. You can identify your trigger and then the, the behavior that you use, what, you, that you do when you experience the trigger and then the result. And, you know, I was trying to figure out how, when I decide that a little bump on my leg is lymphoma. I tried to figure out what the reward is. And you just answered that. It's that I'm, I don't have control over what's going on inside my body because I can't see it. So if I assign it something that even if it's something terrifying, at least I'm answering a question and uncertainty. Yes. Yes. Right. But you, you are also giving yourself that, okay, here's all the worst case scenarios. And then I, I can kind of go down from there. Because, you know, you and I have done that where we already have decided where we would go, depending on what kind of cancer we had. We already have the doctor's phone numbers on speed dial. (laughs) No, we already have talked to each other about, don't let my husband be the one who decides my treatment because I don't know what he's doing. (laughs) So you're in charge of my treatment and this is the places I think I... I should go for this, this, and this. We've had those conversations many times, right? Well, we are anxiety sisters. We are anxiety sisters. (laughs) So I guess in that sense, you can become addicted to anxiety or at least to the behaviors that that you do in response to your anxiety. Yeah, absolutely. So it feeds back, you know, that mental behavior feeds back and then drives more anxiety. And in fact, we can become so identified with anxiety that it feels like who we are. So in... 
you know, I got an email from one of our early pilot testers of our Unwinding Anxiety app saying something to the effect of, I feel like anxiety is deeply etched in my bones, right? Mm -hmm. So that's how identified this person was with her anxiety. And in fact, I have a patient that I wrote about in my book who, when he started, when his anxiety started to go away, he started to get anxious that he wasn't anxious because it just felt strange because he was yeah. so used to, it was like wearing that sweater of anxiety. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And he's like, he took it off and he's like, wow, it's kind of cold. When in fact, maybe it, he didn't need it anymore. Well, for those of us who grew up in what I call anxious houses, you mm -hmm. know, which was definitely me, like there was anxiety in the air in my house. I always like to say it was just such a part of my family script that it's, it's hard to imagine yeah. my family growing up without anxiety. If we don't have our anxiety, we're out of a job. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, you're also highlighting something, and I write a little bit about this in the book, around what's called social contagion, where we can we can catch anxiety from somebody else. You know, oh, sometimes. definitely. And if we catch it enough, <laughs> you know, it's like it becomes ingrained in us because you know, that's, that's just the environment. It's the air we breathe, like you're talking about. And then we can spread it to other people. So it's like that stomach flu that goes around the family. Yes. You know, in a and sense. Like, and in my family of origin, my father doesn't really understand anxiety very much. And that's because he's a carrier. Mm. He gives everyone else anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> An asymptomatic carrier. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> he has plenty of viral load to spread. <laughs> yes, he does. Hey, Dr. Judd, can I ask you about chapter three in your book? This chapter, I read it twice because it really fascinated me. Uh, you were talking about how you, you were trying to examine whether or not you had any addictions and you were thinking, no, of course I don't have any addictions. And then you started thinking about how our world is so clickbait oriented now, right? Mm -hmm. Everything is some kind of an ad or an algorithm attempting to, you know, rein us in to purchase a product or to, to purchase a service. So the fact that our, our system right now is wired for convenience, like we can get Amazon in two hours in some locations, that that sets the stage for addictive experiences. And when I read that, it kind of blew my mind because I was like, oh, my God, I have addictions, too, that I didn't think I had. So what do you think the repercussions are for this kind of society we're living in now and the advent of anxiety? Well, I think I think it's certainly made anxiety worse as a society. You know, we've certainly even BC, you know, before COVID-19, which seems like ancient times right now, <laughs> but even then we were seeing a large spike in anxiety in the, you know, in our country, possibly across the world. And a lot of that has to do with uncertainty. You know, our brains really don't like uncertainty. Mm -hmm. It's basically this, you know, this fear of the unknown. And the idea is, from a, going back to the survival perspective, if we're out of food, we have to go out and find the food. And so there's uncertainty out there, you know, when we're foraging. And so we have to be on high alert. I think you, you already mentioned that earlier. Yet, if we are so freaked out every time we leave the cave, we're never going to leave the cave and we're going to starve to death. So there, there has to be this balance between you know, this tolerance of uncertainty and the the ability to go out and forage versus the, oh, this is really dangerous. I do need to go back in there. So in, in modern day, one, there's a ton of information. So we get information overload. If we go on the internet, there's a lot of that, but there's also a lot of 
uh, whether it's inaccurate or misinformation or deliberate misinformation, where we have to then sort through all of this stuff that looks pretty real, where we didn't have to do that. You know, in ancient times, there was no chat forum to discuss the the pros and the cons of saber-toothed tigers. No, they were just dangerous. You ran away. And it wasn't like, well, let's decide how dangerous they are. So now, not only do we have to sift through a bunch of information, but we also have to decide which information to de- to believe and we've got to wade through all of all of these people weighing in with their opinions, where everybody has an opinion on everything. We have to wade through all of that as well. There's there's quite a bit out there that is really you know makes it makes us all more anxiety prone just because there's so much uh, uncertainty. Doesn't it seem like some of these companies, uh, these huge conglomerates, take advantage of our brains' proclivity for habits? I mean, that's, isn't that what algorithms are all about? They are. So if you think of the attention economy, just getting people to pay attention to your website or to your newspaper or to your product, the idea is to try to do whatever we, whatever somebody can to get us to stay there longer. Mm-hmm. And when, you know, because there are so many people on the internet, you can actually do very rapid iterative testing to try to, you know, move people more and more and more in that direction. This is where we see even radicalization happens. Uh, through algorithms, not because algorithms are trying to radicalize people, but just because that's what gets people to stay on websites longer, you know, and it's so it's this inadvertent or this side effect of companies trying to get our attention, but also is leading to these very negative, you know, uh, side effects of of radicalization that we see. It's interesting because I had a long talk with an anxiety sister the other night, and she was saying to me, well, I I'm hearing all these things about the vaccine, you know, that it might be this or it might be that, and that might not be good. And I was trying to help her sort of sort through some of the science as I understood it, but it was so anxiety provoking for her because she really didn't know where to take the information from or, you know, how to figure out what was true. And, you know, obviously she didn't want to do something that was dangerous. Right, right. And that highlights another issue here, which is that fake news spreads five times faster than real news. Okay. And so our fear brains get sucked in on social media to somebody spreading some fake news over real news. We don't have time to reason or think through this. Our survival brain just goes off and it says, oh, danger, you know, run away. So, you know, we have members of our community who have so much panic that it's hard for them to leave the house. Yes, yes. And, and so how do you work with that in terms of habit? And Yeah. So I, here, I think it's helpful just to understand what our minds are doing at those moments. So when we're panicked, we can't think. It's, you know, panic is basically wildly unthinking behavior that's a result of anxiety. Right. So when we're in the middle of a panic attack, the, the best thing that we can do is try to calm ourselves down as quickly as possible. And so here, I like practices you know, that can help ground somebody, whether it's taking some deep breaths mm-hmm. or um, and I love this five finger breathing practice that I talk about in the book and also have a, a YouTube uh, on if somebody wants to you know, learn what that is. But basically anything that helps people ground in their direct experience, which helps, which helps their thinking brain come back online. So if something, the way our brains project into the future and plan is based on past experience. So if we can get our thinking brain back online, we can think back to past experiences and we can say, okay, I have these physical symptoms. They were just like the panic attack I had, you know, before yesterday, last week, 10 minutes ago. 
And then we can say, okay, it's just like that one. Is there anything that's different? No. Okay. That was a panic attack. Even that in itself helps us gain some certainty. Oh, okay. It's another panic attack. So panic disorder is driven by the fear of having future panic attacks or basically, you know, getting anxious that we might get anxious, right? Right. That part is something that we can work with both retrospectively and in the moment. So when we start to worry, we can actually bring awareness in so we can train ourselves, not necessarily in the middle of a panic attack, right. but in between panic attacks, we can train ourselves to be curious. I think of curiosity as an antidote for panic, right? Mm. So panic makes us feel contracted. Curiosity helps us open up and you can't be contracted and, and open or closed and open at the same time because they're binary opposites. We can train ourselves to get curious about what those symptoms feel like. And instead of going, oh no, here comes another panic attack. It's like, oh, here are some physical sensations and be able to ride them out in real time. And what that does is it doesn't add gasoline to the fire of a panic attack. So mindfulness training is about helping us see our experience, mm -hmm. you know, notice thoughts, notice emotions, notice physical sensations, rather than getting caught up in them and identified with them. Mm -hmm. And then after the panic attack is over, if we've been in, this isn't something that happens the first time we have a panic attack, right, but of course. the more we can train ourselves to be able to see, oh, there's a thought, there's an emotion, there's a body sensation, the more we can kind of ride that wave and then afterwards go, oh, that was a panic attack. Oh, as compared to, oh crap, I just had another panic attack, which then makes us start to worry about the next one we're going to get. What kinds of things can you do in between the panic attacks to sort of work on breaking the habit? That's a great question. That's, that's why I wrote the Unwinding Anxiety book is I set it up as this three-step process that anybody can mm -hmm. do. And that, that first step, is about mapping out these habit loops, you know? So, okay, what's the trigger? What's the behavior? What's the result? And often I'll suggest that people start with the behavior because that's the easiest thing to pinpoint. So the behavior right. often is worrying, it's procrastinating, it's catastrophizing, it's all those things. And once we can map that out, once we see our mind getting stuck into these loops, then we can start to step out of them. So the second step is really this neural hack, if you think it, some people don't like that word, but is a way to, to work with the strongest parts of our brains in a way to help us step out of these processes. And the only way to change a habit is to help us help our brains see how unrewarding they are in the moment. Uh, I'll, I'll give a different example just to give us a little distance from anxiety, and then we'll come back to the anxiety okay. and worry one. So my lab just finished a study, we actually just published it, um, uh, where we, we did this work with this Eat Right Now app where we had people who are trying to stop overeating instead of telling them to stop overeating because that doesn't, you know, willpower is more a myth than muscle. We said, go ahead and overeat, but pay attention as you do. I know that's the best thing about your, well, not the best, but that's one of my favorite things. I just started the app uh -huh. and it's like that will, it's not a willpower issue. Yes. I mean, it's just so relieving that. Thank you. <laughs> Yes. Willpower is about helping diet companies stay in business because they can say the formula is correct and you failed. So you have right, to sign exactly. up for another and year. And I love that in your app. <laughs> yeah. well, it, it takes away the blame and the shame, right? It's yeah. not your fault. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's not. And it's really just about us not knowing how our minds work. So the idea is let's help people learn how their minds work. Let's start there. Right. So our minds work and we'll keep doing a behavior based on how rewarding it is. So if it's if it's still rewarding, we'll keep doing it. But the only way to help us update that reward value and see that it's not rewarding is simply by bringing awareness 
to the situation. So as people over eight, we have them pay attention and ask themselves, what am I basically, what am I getting from this? How content do I feel after I overeat? Shock of all shocks, people don't feel very content after they overeat as compared to when they don't overeat. So it only took us about 10 to 15 times of people using this craving tool as they went through the right now program for this reward value to shift below zero to the point where they were they would stop overeating as compared when given the choice as compared to overeating. So, you know, the summary of all of that is we've really got to hack into the, our brain's reward-based learning system and help our brain see how unrewarding the old behavior is. So I used eating as an example, but the same is true for worrying. When we worry and we ask ourselves, is this serving its purpose? Is it keeping my family safe? Is it solving the problem? Is it whatever? And we see, oh, you know, it's actually not solving the problem. It's not keeping my family safe. It's making me more anxious. We see that it's not very rewarding and we start to become disenchanted with it which is where, and I, I have a bunch of exercises in the third step of the book, but I think of this as we can then bring in the BBO, the bigger, better offer, right? Mm -hmm. And the, the simplest and most accessible uh, and calorie-free and <laughs> no side effects, uh, bigger, better offer is curiosity. You know, we can get curious. So when we're, we have an urge to overeat, we can get curious. Oh, what's that feel like in my body? When we start worrying about when we're going to have our next panic attack, we can get curious. Oh, what does that feel like in my body? What am I getting from this? Uh, and that curiosity opens us up so that we can actually step out of that, that habit loop itself. Mm. One thing a lot of our guests have in common is a strong commitment to a mindfulness practice. Mm. And we know you've done a great deal of training in mindfulness. Uh, would you talk a little bit about your sort of your personal mindfulness stuff and maybe some tips oh. for our listeners? Sure, I'd be happy to. So I started meditating my first day of medical school, actually back in the 90s. So it's you know about 25 years ago. I was trying to relieve my own stress. <laughs> you know? and, and I found that it was really helpful. Uh, so, you know, I started meditating. I've been, med you know, would meditate on a daily basis. And one thing I'll say, one tip that I would give to folks is, I would say, don't try too hard at this. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say that is, I remember going on my first seven day silent meditation retreat. This was a medical school. And by the third, I think it was the third or the fourth day, I was crying uncontrollably on the shoulder of the retreat manager because I was thinking, I could get into medical school, but I can't pay attention to my breath. What's wrong with me? <laughs> <laughs> So the key here, it's not about trying. It's about letting our curiosity draw us in because, well, if we're curious about something, it's naturally easier to stay focused on that object, whether it's our breath or our body or whatever, because curiosity draws us in. We're curious. You know, I would, I would bang my head against the proverbial meditation wall. I did this for 10 years before I realized that what I was doing and that I was forcing it. You know, it's like, oh, could I get curious about these physical sensations in my body? Can I get curious about the physical sensations of breathing? So the, the tip I would give here is, you know, it's, it's all about curiosity. So the more we can foster curiosity, whether it's, you know, formally meditating or even just walking outside and getting curious about what leaves look like. I, I remember doing this for an extended period of time, maybe, I don't know, five or 10 years ago, where I just couldn't get myself to do sitting meditation for some reason. My body just wasn't having it. So I, I listened instead of trying to force myself to, to sit down and meditate. And I went outside and I would, I would go for a two hour walk where I walked through the park just slowly 
and let my senses rip where I would just notice the color of leaves or I would notice the texture of the bark or just notice things and let that be the, the momentary awareness instead of trying to force myself to pay attention to my breath. So a lot of times when people write to us, they say, okay, don't tell me to meditate. Like, you know, <laughs> you help me with my anxiety, but don't tell me to meditate. This is where I love mindful walks when there's anxiety, because that, that walk can meet that anxiety level with the same, same level of energy. Yeah. I had just talked to um, uh, an anxiety sister who was trying so hard to meditate and said that it made her panic during the meditation because she felt like she was doing it wrong. And I totally get that because I've had that experience myself thinking I must be doing this wrong or, you know, and then you get frustrated with yourself. But we were talking, she's a, a horseback rider. And she has a bunch mm -hmm. of horses and that's her whole life. And she said that she, she made a casual comment to me. She said, the only time I'm at peace is when I'm on the horse. I said, aha, oh, now I know how to get you to meditate. I know exactly what you can do. Go on your horse. Go yeah. for a nice ride on your horse and just feel the wind on your face and smell the air and feel the, the texture of your horse's mane and feel the saddle, feel all that and think about all those things and just have that experience. Don't think about anything pressing, just enjoy the ride. Yeah. And, uh, and I haven't heard back from her yet, but she was very excited to try. So we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. It's funny. I really, I think about the metaphor of unwinding. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's just a really apt analogy. I don't know why I brought it up. It just struck me. Our our natural, our mind naturally wants to unwind, which is why, and I have to give props to my wife who actually came up with the title Unwinding Anxiety, you know, both for the app and the book. Great title. But the idea is that's what naturally happens when we bring awareness in. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Well, so what's next for you? What are, what What's fascinating you right now? <laughs> well, you know, I I just would love to see the world wake up a little bit to our own minds to see how our minds work. Because here, you know, anxiety is a huge issue. And so just helping people start to see the basic nuts and bolts of how their minds work, and which can then help them be able to, un, you know, work with anxiety, but also to help them be able to see other habits that they might struggle with. And then also help to see how societally there might be habit forming machines. You know, we talked about social media, we talked about, you know, the attention economy so that they can kind of inoculate themselves against these, these things that, and again, you know, I'm not anti-capitalistic. This is just what the natural consequence of what a company is going to try to do is to try to maximize profits. So here, if we can if we can see how the process works, we're going to be awake to it, so that we can decide whether we want to partake in something rather than just get it sucked in and not know what happened. Right. We can be very aware. We can be mindful and make our choices that way. Yes. Yes. And I would add to that. You know, let's. You know, we spoke about social contagion before. Let's spread kindness. As a social contagion, rather than fear, rather than othering, rather than divisiveness, kindness just feels so much better. And I think that's what's going to help us save, <laughs> save our species yeah. you know, from each other and also save our planet, to be honest. Well, Absolutely. We, we need a, more doctors like Dr. Judd. <laughs> I know. Well, well, how about this? For anybody that's listening, because kindness is not a controlled substance, Mm -hmm. I'm going to write a prescription. So this is my verbal order for it. You can take this to your pharmacist and, and um, get a prescription for it. 
you know, three acts of kindness every day for the next month with unlimited refills. Okay. So we love it. (laughs) We really, really appreciate you sharing with us. Yeah, this conversation has been fantastic. And I, I think our community will benefit tremendously from that prescription that we are going to share that we got Dr. Judd's permission to sign his name to any prescription for kindness three times a day. Unlimited refills. Wonderful. Once again, Dr. Judd's new book is Unwinding Anxiety. New science shows how to break the cycles of worry and fear to heal your mind. And you can get that book wherever books are sold. You can also check out the Unwinding Anxiety app, which I use myself and I can tell you is fantastic. We have put Dr. Judd's website and all his social media info in the show notes. And I have put a link to his book and his amazing TED Talk. You want to take 18 minutes and watch that. Something about the simple way to break a habit, I think it was called, or something similar to that. It's great. Really wonderful talk. So thank you again, Dr. Judd. We so appreciate it. It was my pleasure. I really enjoyed being here. You can find us on Facebook, on Instagram. We are sort of on Twitter. We're on Twitter. We just don't have a huge number of people on there with us, but that could change. That could totally change based on you guys. So follow us on Twitter. Based on our habits, that can change. That's true. Um, Our website is www.anxietysisters.com. You forget the dot. www.anxietysisters.com. I'm sorry. As always, if you have feedback, especially compliments, Yes, we want the compliments. Um, questions, if you have an idea for a podcast, please email us. And if you're enjoying our podcast, it would be so, so, so helpful if you could leave us a review on Amazon or Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you want, wherever you listen to these podcasts. We really want to get the word out. Yes, we want people to hear all these great guests that we've been having. And we want to thank you so much for joining us. And remember, anxiety sisters, don't don't go it alone. alone. Eh. You know, the first four or five podcasts we ever did were so much better with that ending. I mean, the the podcasts weren't as good. And we didn't have the great guests, but we really got that ending down much better. Well, we were together, though, too. Now we're doing it over Zoom. It's Zoom. Blame it on Zoom. I'm blaming it. I'm blaming pretty much everything this year on Zoom. Good strategy. You've been listening to The Spin Cycle, an Anxiety Sisters production. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved.